0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. One thing we have to certainly affirm from the book of Hebrews is that the wilderness life is a challenge. The author of Hebrews is being honest about that. And he recognizes when Israel was outside the land, there was a longing for the land. This is something we can relate to, right? We desire to be in the full glory of heaven. And the reality is, it's hard for us and challenging for us to live out the gospel. Here we are as those who are conscious of redemption, conscious of a heavenly calling, and yet here we are on this earth, struggling to basically get through this age uh, without sinning so badly. And so, when Hebrews is addressing this, we we can be tempted, like this original audience, to want to go back to a man-made solution and wanting to go back to the land of Canaan and desiring to reinstitute that more tangible, visible religion because we can say well the people back then when they sinned, they could bring an offering to a priest and as they brought an offering to a priest they could they could hear death they could smell death they they could see it before their eyes and now we have no priest and as we have no priest how can we go through this age in the confidence that we will persevere and enter into the most holy place. And so this is fundamentally what the author of Hebrews is dealing with. And we can't minimize the significance of him teaching us Christ is necessary, Christ is exclusive. We're not going to get to heaven any other way than in Christ Jesus. And this is why he's spending so much time I'd argue being repetitive, maybe even redundant in a beautiful way. I I love his redundancy. It's very edifying. But redundant in the sense of prosecuting the point that Christ is of a superior and greater priestly line. And so we may say, well, if Christ is in heaven of this priestly line, and I'm here on earth, how do I connect to him? How do I know that Christ is really connected to me? How do I know this? How do I know that it's actually better to have Christ seated in the full glory of heaven as I sojourn under this Earth or under the sun with all its temptations, as we read in Proverbs, reminding, there's a lot of temptations to turn away from wisdom. How do I know that this Christ really is sufficient? Well, as we hear this, well, will hear his arguments as a priestly problem. As he goes and he lays out another problem with Christ that you can hear as a Jewish objection, not that I have a problem with Christ being priest or Hebrews has a problem with Christ being a priest, but in terms of the legality of it, he's addressing that. Secondly, a priestly inferiority. Why is Christ a good priest? Why, why do we want him? So Hebrews is saying, let's talk about it. And lastly, a priestly guarantee. So we have the problem, inferiority, and the guarantee. So what's the fundamental problem? We can't minimize the context because the author of Hebrews is building on this context. Chapter 7, he's beginning to wrap up the implications of this Melchizedekian priesthood. So there's nothing that's really fundamentally earth-shatteringly new in terms of his argument, but it, it is developing. And he wants us to really understand the significance of Christ. And so what he's doing here is he's saying there were priests before Abraham or there was a priest at the time of Abraham. There's priests that come after Abraham. And the argument he's made is that as Abraham paid the tithe from the spoils of war to Melchizedek, it's Levi giving honor to another priesthood. And that's, that's the point he's made. So he's saying, Therefore, by that historic precedent, the Levitical priesthood paid homage or honor to another priesthood uh, in terms of the Mosaic law, in terms of how we see this all functioning. But now he's dealing with another problem because we dealt with that issue. Why is one priest better than this line? There's no one spoken of uh, coming from the priestly line of Judah or Melchizedek, and and yet uh, we got to embrace him. And, And the point is, even Levi paid him honor. So now we we have this problem not only in terms of a a genealogy which is what we addressed last time that you know he's a priest uh, without beginning without end he just is uh, this reality but he's going on now to deal with uh the law of god because now we we have another problem we know as we saw last time and we overcame this objection as there's a succession of priests uh, from levi they're always the sons of aaron so they have to be genealogically tied to Levi. Well, there's, there's one that has no beginning, no end. Uh, he's without genealogy, and because of that, he's superior. But now you, you can understand a, a Hebrew or, or someone that's steeped in the Old Testament traditions and the Old Testament practices and saying, but wait a minute. This is a command from Moses. Moses is a prophet from God and and he spoke the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy 18 tells us that God will put his words in the mouth of the prophet. So if the Levitical priesthood is not a valid priesthood anymore and it's done away and it was provisional, how, how does this work? Because that was the legal requirement and yet Christ is from the tribe of Judah, not from the line of Levi. And so this seems that God is contradicting himself. So this is the the problem in a nutshell that the author of Hebrews is addressing. And he wants us to understand the significance of this, as this is laid out and we walk through this. Because notice then in verses 11 and 12, this is what he's addressing. He's saying, now listen, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, we wouldn't have needed a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So that's, that's the first thing he's addressing. So if legality, uh, the Levitical priesthood takes things away, we don't need Melchizedek. But he says, well, if there's a change in a the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. So the author of Hebrews isn't denying the reality that God did change the law. There is a different legal requirement. And so he's not sweeping this argument under the bus. He's not being dis- or under the carpet. He's not being uh, dismissive of this. He's saying the reality is, I understand. There has to be a change in the law. Going on then, as we move into verse 13 and 14. For as we have the one who has spoken of another tribe, uh, one who has ever served at the altar. So we don't have Judah ever serving at the altar. And then verse 14 seems to do no, no justice here or, or doesn't help him at all. We have that the Lord descended from Judah. So he's not lying about Christ's genealogy. saying, he, he descended from the line of Judah, I don't deny that. And so we say, okay, well we affirm that, why is that a problem? Well the problem, he goes on to say, this doesn't have anything about a priesthood. Moses never predicted a priest coming from the line of Judah. Now this descending or this sprouting is something that when we find in the Old Testament as he takes a Greek translation in the Hebrew Bible, the sprouting doesn't even refer to the Levitical priesthood or a continuation of their genealogy. Uh, it's generally used in terms of plant sprouting, uh, like we can see in Genesis 2 verse 5. Uh, we see the sprouting of thorns and thistles, Genesis 3.18. So it's referring to vegetation. In fact, this sprouting referring to vegetation gets applied uh, throughout the prophets in terms of Christ sprouting up and sprouting up the line of Judah. So he's he's using this language that the immediate audience would be familiar with, not referring back to Levi, but calling attention further to Christ being from the line of Judah. So he's, he's, again, he's not sweeping this under the carpet. He's not being secretive about this problem. He's saying... Here's the reality. This Christ, this, this one that was promised and what's going on, uh, here's the reality of who he is. That he is the one who comes from the line of Judah. So this, this problem here is, is a problem in terms of the law. It's the next issue we're addressing. We, we've addressed, we address the issue of a genealogy in the beginning. Now he's setting the stage. I grant when it comes to the sprouting up, when it comes to this line, it's all the line of Judah. doesn't speak of a Melchizedekian priest or, or a priest in the line of Judah. So how does this happen? We go on in verses 15 through 19, where he says now, he's basically saying this problem even becomes more evident, basically is a way of saying this. You know, this, this issue even becomes a bigger issue uh, when we consider a priest coming from the likeness of Melchizedek. Where is this priest? Where does this come from? going on in terms of this Melchizedekian priest, we say, okay, well then what's significant about him? Well, it's not by bodily descent. Okay, so now he's getting at the legality, the genealogy. But here's an important term, an indestructible life. So he's saying, do you want to know the significance of this genealogy and not having a genealogy or being from eternity? His life is one that cannot be destroyed. He endures forever. And as he endures forever, this qualifies him to be a greater priest than the order of Melchizedek, right? So now we're getting at his thesis. We're we're getting at what he's claiming to say. And you go, okay, how, (laughs) right? I mean, if Moses said it, it is the word of God, and none of us dispute that. that that's the truth. Moses is a, is a prophet who is duly constituted by God, the paradigm prophet, Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to raise up a prophet like unto you from your brothers. He's a prophet. He's duly called. He brings the word of God. But he wants us to understand the significance of this indestructible life. Because verse 17 now, he cites Psalm 110, verse 4. Like I said, Nothing earth-shattering in terms of the development of the argument. He's cited this plenty of times. Psalm 110, we think of the one who secures and brings uh, that eternal life that never ends, the river of life, uh, the the one who bows down, the the one who confers this life. He's a priest forever in the order of uh, king of righteousness. So all these things we know. But now he, he goes on and says, okay, So let's address this legal requirement. So he goes on in verse 18. We have the former priesthood had a problem. And the problem is that uh, these individuals do not endure forever. And as they do not endure forever, they are those who have this weakness and a uselessness. Now this is pretty strong language that's used here in verse 18. This weak, helpless, basically, it's one who is not powerful enough to overcome their circumstances. It's not a deep theological word. It just—it just literally means that I'm too weak to finish the task. Uh, whether it's a race, whether it's a day at work, uh, something's happened. You're too weak to do it. Uh, Paul, Second Corinthians 10:10, as he addresses the objections, he says, "Here's a man who is strong in his letters." Weak in the presence, right? So so when you meet him, when he interacts with you, he's not someone that's overpowering and strong. It's just a weakness. And so that's telling us it's not necessarily a theological term. It's just saying it's impotent. It doesn't have power. It's not strong. And so it's weak. But he goes on to say that it's also useless. Another word, uh, another way of translating this to bring it into the English is unprofitable. He's saying something pretty strong here that maybe as New Testament Christians, we we don't hear the strength of this. He's basically chopping off the Levitical priesthood in these two terms, saying it didn't have power, for one thing. It it couldn't do anything. And secondly, it's actually unprofitable. It doesn't add to us. It doesn't do anything. And so we we hear this, and if we put ourselves in in the shoes of, of a Hebrew... We think, well, what are you saying? Are you saying that that God's a liar? Are you saying that there's a problem with God? And that what he provides is insufficient for us? Because he was in the temple. He he was in the tabernacle. We built these things according to his standard. How can you say that this priesthood is weak and useless? What's strong language? But as he's saying this, he wants us to understand this This isn't a problem with God. Because he wants us to understand the significance of this. Verse 19 answers this. The law made nothing perfect. Now when he's using law, here he's speaking of an administration. Did Israel end up in exile? Yes. We'll hear about this this evening. They ended up in exile because of their sin. The Levitical priesthood did not cleanse them or perfect them. When Christ enters history, are they in a perfect state? No, the leaders of Israel are so pure, so holy in and of themselves, they don't need Christ. So the author of Hebrews is saying, did it accomplish anything? Did they walk into heaven? Did did they find cleansing in this? No. The author of Hebrews is saying, see, it's useless. It didn't accomplish its end. The law of God did not do it. But now we have this reality, then as it's weak and it doesn't make anything perfect, we say, okay, (laughs) then what's the hope? I mean, if there is no way for us to come into the presence of God, we go home because it means we can't worship him. It means we we can't enter into heaven. It means everything that's promised in the gospel falls flat. And so the author of Hebrews, he doesn't want to discourage us. He doesn't want to say, well, there's no hope. So just go home, forget about it. It's all done. But he wants us to understand that there is something superior to us that we have. As the law made nothing perfect, we have a better hope. So remember this hope in in Hebrews. This isn't some Pollyanna pie in the sky, uh, empty, meaningless optimism. Hope is something tangible. It's understanding not that I hope tomorrow's better, as we've talked about before. When he uses hope, he's building on this theological concept. We have a fundamental assurance that that there is something better for us we have a fundamental assurance that we will enter into heaven we have a fundamental assurance that we do have the true blessings of the gospel in life in christ today and this hope is not something that's future right because normally when we think of hope Well, i hope tomorrow's better i hope next year is better i hope whatever is better right it's always in the future but right now, with this hope, we draw near to God. And so he's telling us that this hope is not holy future, not holy something that's going to happen on the day of glory. Certainly, we enter into the greater hope. I don't want to minimize that. But right now, today, we have a hope. So he's not saying to, the, to the, the, the people here in the synagogue in Rome, hey, just go home, be discouraged, don't have any life, you know, there, there's no meaning at all, and maybe at the end it's going to work out. No, he's saying, listen... You're looking to the wrong solution. You need to see the solution of God's provision. Because he says, now listen, why why is it that these individuals are insignificant? That as we have this, this new hope that we draw near to God, we're drawing near to God in this life that is indestructible. This is where we're starting to build on this concept of this Melchizedekian priest who's superior. His life doesn't end. He's not threatened. Uh, there's no illness you know the old priests they live they die they don't continue but our Christ he continues there's nothing that will overpower him so that's what Hebrews is is building on and and, and assuring us of at this point right up to now but we say okay what about this priestly guarantee Um, we can argue actually verses 20 through 25 is where he prosecutes that, verses 26 to 27 would be the conclusion. or 26 through 28, excuse me would be the conclusion. But I want to take all of these last verses, 20 through 28 together. Because as he builds on this in verse 20, he's drawing this concept now of an oath and, and this guarantee. So remember the oath that he made to Abraham. We, we've talked about this, He's building on this. He's talking about Genesis 15, Genesis 17 the Lord passing between the pieces of animals, the Lord taking death, and the Lord has to do this to fulfill the promise of the oath. So we've talked about this. This is what he's referring back to, those events, as he's already cited. But we know that that these priests that that enter into history, the Levitical line, he says, listen, these priests didn't come into history by an oath of God. So now we're we're thinking back, okay, Psalm 110, where, where the Lord made an oath. He made this promise that he's a priest forever as he goes on in verse 21, citing this. You are this priest forever. And so the Lord, in terms of this oath, in terms of the covenant of grace that the Lord has made with Abraham, he has to fulfill this. There has to be an eternal priest that enters into history. The Levitical priestly line, not going to do it. Um, This is the one. Christ himself is the one. Now, as we've talked about Psalm 110, he's not going to change his mind. This will endure forever. This was promised to Abraham. We get into the significance of this one referring back to and applying the implications of Genesis 15. Now, if you're not familiar with Genesis 15, remember the Lord says, Abram, I'll be your shield and defender. Uh, Abram says, amen to the promises of God. and, And he walks in the power of God following the Lord. And, and, and the Lord is the one who walks between the pieces of animals. And so as the Lord passes between the pieces of animals, he's taking the curse of the covenant upon himself. So this has to come to pass. This is something that's guaranteed. This is an oath that God has made to mankind to secure his people. So it's important to understand this as a backdrop. He's cited Abraham. This, this is what the author of Hebrews has said. Notice in verse 22, he's a guaranteer of a better covenant. So now people say, well, this means Christ is a mediator. No, that's, that's not what it means. And, and uh, granted, this isn't a, a word that's used in Scripture. This is the only reference in the New Testament, the only reference we can actually find in Scripture. And so some people say, well, this means that he's a mediator. But actually, if we look at secular um, resources, in terms of of Greek and what was used. In terms of of the secular resources, these were used in legally binding contracts. And so giving a guarantee is is something that we would understand in our culture today. So if you buy a piece of property, you give a guarantee, right? So you're going to give, not necessarily the whole down payment, but you're basically taking the contract and attaching something to the contract, usually a check, money, some sort of collateral, so that if you back out, you're going to lose that. So the person who's entering into this contract with you says, oh, I I know they're serious. They're they're not bluffing. They're not considering an option. They're serious about this contract. There's there's some skin in the game. So now when, when we think of Christ being the guarantor of a greater covenant, this is dealing with Christ laying down his life. So when Christ is the one who offers himself in this indestructible life as he's going to build on this. So it's important. Okay, guarantee the greater covenant. Christ is the one who legally secures, guarantees what God has promised will come to pass. This is guaranteed. It is certain. It will happen. So he's, he's developing then the significance. This is why we talked about Abraham. This is why we talked about the priesthood. This is why we talked about bloodshed. Jesus is the one who guarantees this new covenant. We say, okay. So he guarantees it. And he brings about and establishes the promises of God. The Lord made this oath. This is the confirmation of the oath. I still want a priest. I still want a a Levitical priest. He says, okay. Let's continue to, to explore this and what that means. The former priests were many in number. Say so, yes, exactly. Because I liked knowing that there's going to be a priest standing before me where I could bring my sacrifice. And if he died, there was a successor. So the author of Hebrews, you sort of imagine him pausing at this moment, letting them think about and bolster their argument. Say, so, yeah, you know why they were many in number? Because they died, they couldn't continue in office. The very fact that they were human beings who succumbed to the common curse tells us, no matter how righteous, no matter how perfect, no matter how good or pious they may have been, they could not make the promises of God effective. They died like every other human being. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, think about the implications of that. Do you want a priest with an indestructible life who never dies? Or do you want one that can get cancer, or one who can have an accident, a tragic accident, one who could just die of old age and wear out? What kind of priest do you really want if you're gonna lay these against each other? Well, the intention is "I, I, I don't want the temporary one. So exactly. Because our Melchizedekian priest, he holds his priesthood forever so this indestructible life is not just that he can guarantee and ratify or confirm the promises of God but this indestructible life means that as priest he will be our priest forever we don't have to worry about some other power carrying him off we don't have to worry about the temple being destroyed again we don't have to wait for a temple to be rebuilt we have a priest who endures forever And so we say, okay, so he's a priest that endures forever. That's great, but he's still distant. He's still in heaven. How is this beneficial to me? So you can understand this is where the mind's going to go. And boom, right after that, verse 25, he answers that objection. He says, you want to know why this is important? Because he saves to the uttermost. He's the one that this is a way of just saying he saves completely, completely. In other words, There is nothing else that needs to be done in terms of our redemption. This is 100% accomplished. And so we can draw near to God. This is come near approach uh, using Old Testament Levitical language of approaching God, actually coming into his presence. I mean, this is a very personal term that, that we're actually coming near into the presence of God. And we can do this because of Christ. Now, the other thing is say, okay, so we've drawn near to God. This is great, wonderful. You know, you can understand sort of the, the cynic taking this apart, but how does this benefit me? And the author of Hebrews says, as if salvation isn't enough, as if ratifying and confirming the promises of God isn't enough, as if making a one-time sacrifice isn't enough. You want to know what else he does? He prays for you. He makes intercession for us. Do you understand how profound that is? I mean, we, we, we went through the book of Zechariah and, and Daniel, and Daniel especially. Remember, I made the comment that Daniel wants to know what's going on. He's praying, I want to go back to the land. Why are we in exile? The Lord's like, you want to see what I'm dealing with? And he pulls back the curtain, and Daniel sees all the empires, all the turmoil, all the spiritual warfare. And, and, and you can understand, no, Lord, I'm good being ignorant, right? I, I like being ignorant. I, I don't want to know all that stuff. It's kind of scary. So you think about God dealing with all that. His war against Satan. Satan continues to challenge him, challenge him. Not that, you know, God's fatigued by this. But in terms of our human mindset, somebody stops you along the way as you're engaged in this battle with Satan. Like, hey man, there's a bigger thing I'm dealing with out there. Your little problem, not such a big deal, right? That's what we think as human beings. That's our mindset. Now that is the earthly priesthood. That is a Levitical priesthood. The priesthood of Christ as he's dealing with all this spiritual war going on behind the scenes. He's dealing with all these powers and and ruling over the world, making sure that the little birds have their food, making sure that all these animals are cared for. You know, read Job. He's like, Job, you, you attend to all these details. Ostrich abandons its young. I actually raise up that little, that little young ostrich and see that it arises or, or goes to adulthood. I do that, right? So all the details of creation, and he still prays for us. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying in a very personal note, saying you want to go to a priest that's too busy for you, a priest who has to offer a sacrifice for himself because of his inferiority. He's sinful. He dies. You, you want that? over the one who is there making intercession for you in the most heavenly places that we'll get to in a moment? Do you really want that? mean, it's a beautiful thing of how personal our Lord is to us, that, that it's not that we just pray to him, which is the reminder, yes, we're, we're called to do that. But even when we don't know how to pray, even when we feel too worn out, even when we don't know what to say, we have a priest who intimately knows each and every one of us and prays for us and intercedes on our behalf that is a remarkable priest going on then as if this isn't good enough verses 26 to 28 as i mentioned basically just very briefly this is a summary uh, basically a summary a bit of a conclusion to this melchizedekian priesthood because he goes on now say okay let's think about who christ is holy innocent unstained separated from sinners now this reality It's telling us that right here, he's clearly superior to the Levitical priesthood. So right there, okay, we, we understand that using Levitical language, using what the priests were supposed to be, set apart unto God, apart from sinners, not like the sinners, not stained in any way, perfect. Now as he goes on, the other ones have to offer sacrifices, right? So Christ just intrinsically in his person is the ideal of what the Levitical priesthood was supposed to be. Now he's saying in in terms of what they could do in their ceremonial or or, uh, modeled reality as a priest, they would offer sacrifices for themselves. And as they offer sacrifices, they they could have moments in terms of how the the law worked uh, where it would seem they were pure enough. But they had to first purify themselves and then they could work on behalf of the people. So Christ is is not like that. We find then that now we're addressing, okay, so what is this weakness? What is this uh, lack of accomplishment in terms of of the law of God? Now he's answering that question because it was in your weakness. He appoints men in your weakness. In other words, Hebrews is saying it was provisional. I understand you people. I understand how you get tired. I understand how you get weary. So I gave you a provisional administration and modeled heaven It was a smaller picture of the greater reality. I gave that to you. I I was there with you. But don't look to that as your hope. That's not your hope. Your hope is what it ultimately points to in that eternal priest who intercedes on your behalf, who doesn't have to make purification for his own sins because he is perfect. A priest whose life doesn't end because it's indestructible, it continues. He can save to the uttermost. Now, when we wrap up in verse 28, as they're appointed in their weakness, now we have this issue with the word of the oath, and then we have the word of the oath that comes after the law. So somebody could say, oh, well, see, here's something that's a contradiction in Hebrews, right? He's talked about the oath uh, being first and then the law. But that's not really reading verse 28 uh, fairly. Because the point he's making is how this is manifested in time. So in time, we have the Levitical priesthood that ministers. In terms of who Christ is, he comes after that historically. And so what he's saying is that as you have the oath that was made, you don't have the confirmation of that oath in the administration of the Mosaic economy. You have a picture of it. Uh, You have a provision for God caring for his people, but it's not the full manifestation of it. The full manifestation of it is truly where we have the Lord appointing the reality of his Son entering history and the one who is the one who is a priest forever. So this indestructible life is this life that endures. So we go back then to verse 26. And we consider then what what does it mean that he's exalted above the heavens? Just, Just very briefly. It means that in terms of the ultimate heavenly reality, Above the sky, above the firmament, above the angels, in, in the greatest and the highest place that he can be. This is where he presides as priest forever. So when he's talking about being behind the curtain, he's saying this isn't the temple that's the model. This isn't a temple that's a picture. It's not the temple that's a prototype. It's a temple that stands beyond it. The full glorious temple is where he resides making intercession on your behalf. As a priest that never dies, never ends, a priest who endures forever. And so in conclusion then, when we ask that question of how do we get through this age, right? I mean, Israel had their priests. You can go to a guy, you could make a sacrifice, you could see it right before your very eyes. How can we say that right now, having this definitive priest in heaven is superior Because we have one that does not need to take away his own sins. Christ is the one who is sinless. We don't have a one who will succumb to the common curse. No matter how perfect, no matter how pious, no matter how righteous or holy he may be in terms of of his sanctification. he Can't overcome it. Still legally guilty before God. Can't overcome it. But Christ, is the one who doesn't have to overcome it in the sense that he himself doesn't succumb to it because he is perfect. He has an indestructible life. Now he submits to it and he takes a consequence of it. He takes a sanction of it so we can have life. The old priesthood, busy, uh, succumbs to illness, one that isn't able to function perfectly. Christ intercedes for us in the most holy heavenly And so let us not then think we're in a place in covenant history in terms of our wilderness sojourn and thinking that this is a place where where there's no hope, a place where there's no peace, a place where where we have no priest. We can think that. We can fall into that. But Hebrews is assuring us, as Israel went on your wilderness sojourn, He's saying, one thing you want to take from that, don't test the Lord. It's one thing you want to take from that. That's that's a negative thing. Positive thing. They entered into the rest. In other words, they had the small model of Canaan. But it wasn't the fullness of it. It was a mere picture. It's an assurance. So as Israel inherited a model, think about what the Lord has for us in our greater Melchizedekian priest who is able to save to the uttermost to bring us into the heavenly land of Canaan that never ends, where we enter into the true, sacred, holy temple of God, into his presence directly, because we are those who are consummated and perfected on that glorious day. And he's saying right now, our Lord is praying for us, interceding on our behalf, leading us, guiding us by the power of his spirit as we walk by faith. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.